Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. We've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to get into the uh, hidden hand of the U.S. blockade in Cuba. What's going on with that? Leonardo Flores with Code Pink will be with us. What are the Republicans up to? Right? I'll tell you what it looks to me like they're up to. And it's conceivable that I'm completely misjudging this. And if you think that I'm wrong on this, you know, or if you think I'm right and I've overlooked something, give me a shout. But it seems to me that what's going on here, well, let me start. Let me back up a little bit. Dr. Jonathan Reiner, he's a CNN medical analyst. He was on CNN a couple of days ago and he said, a surprising amount of death will occur soon. Now, what he's talking about is the fact that this Delta variant, which is twice as contagious and two or three times more deadly than the previous variations of COVID, and it's killing 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds in Missouri, for example, right now, and now in Alabama and Arkansas, hospital ICUs are filling up, and they're filling up now with 70-year-olds. 70-year-olds are all vaccinated. They're, they're filling up with 20 and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds, and not people who are obese or who are suffering from diabetes or heart disease or asthma or any of the other conditions that might predispose you. These are healthy people. So this is happening right at the same time that right across the spectrum from Republican elected officials to Republican commentators, to Republican-leaning media from Fox News to OAN to, I mean, just the whole bunch of right-wing hate radio all across the country, right-wing publications, at the same time that all of these Republican-affiliated groups are saying, don't get vaccinated. Why would Republicans and their media be telling their followers not to get vaccinated when 600 thousand Americans are already dead from this virus. Millions are already probably permanently, certainly at the moment, disabled because of this virus. About a third of men who get a serious case of it are impotent. 
I mean, it's like, why would these guys who are, you know, who proclaim their macho masculinity, why would they be telling people not to get vaccinated? I mean, just consider this. Why, you know, for, for example, why did Trump get vaccinated after, after he lost the election and after the, the, the coup attempt on January 6th failed? Why did he get secretly vaccinated, him and his wife and his son? Why did they secretly get vaccinated in the White House? Why are the Fox News personalities who are discouraging people from getting vaccinated refusing to tell us whether they themselves are vaccinated? Tucker Carlson and others are to this day, oh no, I'm not going to tell you if I'm vaccinated or not, but you shouldn't get vaccinated. Why would they? Why? Why was one of the biggest applause lines at CPAC, and I quote, they were hoping, the government was hoping that they could sort of sucker 90% of the population into getting vaccinated and it isn't happening. And there was a huge, you know, this is like standing ovation quality applause at CPEC. Why are Republican legislators around the country pushing laws that would ban private businesses from asking your vaccine status before they decide whether they're going to let you in their place of business or not? They call it banning vaccine passports. For that matter, why have seven states now put into law, this is uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, Montana, Oklahoma, and Utah, according to CNN, put into law that their schools can't require vaccines. That would include colleges. Why, when, when Joe Biden said, maybe we should send people, you know, volunteers door to door in low vaccine communities, telling people where they can get vaccinated and when and how. And the right wing goes nuts saying, oh, jackbooted thugs coming to shove something down our throats. Why do half of the members of Congress who are Republicans refuse to say if they're vaccinated? Why does Christy Nome, the, the governor of uh, South Dakota, downplay the dangers of COVID saying, well, we never even closed our state, unlike Ron DeSantis. When South Dakota has 230 COVID deaths per 100,000 people, one of the highest in the country, compared to similar population states, Vermont and Oregon, Vermont has 41 per 100,000, Oregon has 66, South Dakota's 230. Why is this going on? Well, I hope I'm, I'm wrong. I, I am hope you, I'm hoping that you can prove to me that I'm wrong. But it looks to me like the only explanation that I can come up with is that they want more people to die. Now, why would they want more people to die? Well, because if they can get the pandemic rolling again here in the United States, it will cause states to shut down. And if states shut down, then the economy goes in the tank. And if the economy goes in the tank, the party in power always loses the next election. It's what happened to Donald Trump. It's why Democrats right now control the House, the Senate, and the White House. The economy went in the tank. I mean, it all it's like... It is, it's like a law of physics. It's like Newton's second law of motion. When the economy goes down, party in power gets kicked out. Yeah, I mean, particularly if the economy goes down substantially. Pat Buchanan wrote in his uh, newsletter today, he said, are the Democrats headed for their little bighorn with President Joe Biden as Colonel Custard? The wish you suggest is father to the thought. Right. It seems to me like they're not just willing to let tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Americans get sick or die to win the next two elections. 
they're actively encouraging that outcome. Death is their official electoral strategy. Is there any other possible explanation? I mean, let's consider some of the possible explanations. Number one, they're stupid. Well, no, they're not stupid. Most of these people have college degrees, and Lauren Boebert just got her GED. And even if they were stupid, they're government officials. They have access to medical experts, and they have staff people who know how to use Google. So it's not that they're stupid. Is it possible that they just hate America? I doubt it. I mean, yeah, John Kennedy and, and Ron Johnson celebrated the 4th of July in Moscow and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think these guys are going to coordinate with a foreign power to kill Americans, even if most of the foreign trolls are promoting vaccine freakouts. Is it that there's this bizarre faux masculinity, you know, that Trump was promoting, saying, you know, masks are something wimps wear when he was making fun of Joe Biden? Oh, Joe Biden, he wears two masks. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think people are taking masculinity cues from an obese geriatric guy with the nation's biggest comb over who wears absurd amounts of makeup, male diapers, and false teeth. I mean, what's masculine about slowly drowning in your own snot? What's masculine about not being able to get an erection because you had COVID? I don't think it's masculinity. I don't think it's a fear of the vaccine itself. As CNN medical analyst uh, Reiner said, quote, over 100 members of Congress, all of them GOP members refuse to tell their constituents whether they've been vaccinated. They have all been vaccinated. Every single one of these characters have been vaccinated, end quote. It has nothing to do with conservative, uh, conservative ideology. You got conservatives like Bill Kristol and George W. Bush out there proudly proclaiming their vaccine status. Reagan oversaw, you know, uh, requiring vaccines in California schools when he was governor. So it's not that. It's not that they're being paid by Big Pharma to trash vaccines. I mean, there's no money in this for them. Nobody's going to make money off not selling vaccines. So what's left? I mean, that's every possible reason that I could think of for why Republicans would encourage people not to get vaccinated in the face of a deadly disease. Which leaves me nothing other than the possibility or the probability or maybe even the certainty that Republicans are doing this because they want more people to die because they think that'll hurt the economy. And if the economy goes in the tank, then they will win the next election. I dare you to talk me off the ledge on this thing. <laughs> you know, I just I, I, I can't see any other possible explanation. And I realize this is like strong language, right? The headline over at HartmanReport.com is uh, death is their election strategy. I probably should have put a question mark at the end of it. But what else could it be? I mean, is it that they love death? I don't think so. They're all afraid of dying, just like everybody else. That's why they're secretly vaccinated. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So what do you think is going on? And I want to get into Republican morality, too. Stick around. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? I could check off just about all of the above that you were mentioning as reasons, but the economy is number one. 
it's going really well. If the infrastructure bill passes, it's even going to, going to be going better. Oh, it's going to explode. If some, yeah, if the voter, some sort of voter right, rights act pass, passes ditto, people are going to be more inclined to vote for Democrats if they're independents. So the Republicans are going to try to do everything they can to screw things up. January 6th is a good example. They were trying to stop the certification of the election. Right. Trump is running around now having rallies, and he's proclaiming that he's that he still won. This is like a, a full frontal attack on democracy by the, I call them the Refuglicon Party, and I spell it with three capital Ks. They're cons, they're, you know, they're con jobs, mm. and they're Ku Klux Klan. They don't want us voting. So if they can kill a number of people who might be Democrats, that's a plus for them. I don't so think they, they don't care, care whether it's Democrats or Republicans. The one, the one area where I think they might have some consideration, if you go back and, you know, I wrote, I've written several op-eds about this now. You go back to April 7th of last year, right, a little mm -hmm. a year and three months ago. April 7th was the day that all of the major newspapers reported this blockbuster study that found that black people were more likely to die from COVID than white people. And of course, exactly. you know, and, and that was literally, that was the week that the Trump administration stopped all efforts to constrain, to contain or constrain this virus and tried to open the country back up rather than shutting the country down. It was literally that week where Rush Limbaugh uh, suddenly goes, oh, there's a racial component to this. I mean, I've got links to the actual quotes from Limbaugh in my articles on that, you know, that you can easily find on that. And he's going, oh, there's a racial component to this. Well, maybe we need to reconsider this. And so, yeah, they've got no problem promoting the death of black people. I mean, that, that certainly, you know, a year ago, I think that was conspicuous. And I'm, I'm astonished that the media has done such a terrible job of, of reporting on that because it's, the evidence is just laying right there on the ground. Anybody can, you know, pick it up and look at it. But outside of that, well, I don't think they care. I don't think they care well, who you does, know, Dennis. Sort of following on what you just said, I heard a NPR report yesterday that only half of the Hispanic Americans and Native Americans in Arizona have been vaccinated. The Native American community there, they're, it's very remote, you know, places in Arizona that are far away from health centers. Yeah. And with the Hispanic community, there's, and you know, it's not just, you know, it's not Mexicans, people with Mexican backgrounds, it's El Salvador and Guatemalan and so on. And they have their radio stations, but uh, those radio stations haven't really been telling people to get vaccinated. So now there's going to be a push to do that. No, you got right-wing radio stations vaccinated. telling them the opposite. They're, they're you exactly. know, in Spanish. They're singing the same song. Mm -hmm. These vaccines are going to alter your DNA, which is a lie, you know. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. So, but, you know, that's one state. Missouri, though, I mean, that's a red taker state. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. Dennis, thank you for the call. Telling the truth, the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about. Apparently, the Republicans, too. Stick around. We'll be right back. possibility that the Republican 
2022 election strategy is grounded in killing a lot of people or you know, letting the virus kill a lot of people, raises a secondary question, which I also present to you, which is what is Republican morality? There's a new book out. In fact, it's coming out this week. The Guardian got a, got a hold of a copy of it. It's called Perversion of Justice, and it's going to be published at, oh, actually next week. And in this book, they lay out how Ken Starr, remember Ken Starr? Ken Starr, back in, in the late 1990s, Ken Starr was the guy that Newt Gingrich hired to put in charge, you know, the special prosecutor or whatever his title was, independent counsel. It was one or the other. They, they changed from, <laughs> from decade to decade. But basically, he was the guy who did the investigation of Bill Clinton that led to, the, to Monica Lewinsky. He published this star report with all these salacious details. I mean, literally blow by blow, no pun intended, um, uh, details of, of uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky's sex life. What they did, where they did it, how they did it, what position they did it in. I mean, they didn't actually do it, but they did a lot of pre-its. I don't even want to go there. Anyway, Ken Starr was the guy who just drenched our nation in the late 90s with this salacious BS because he was just so, so indignant that Bill Clinton was having an affair with a 22-year-old. A young intern. How dare he? Well, it turns out, according to this new book, Perversion of Justice by Julie K. Brown, Ken Starr was the guy who got Jeffrey Epstein off and used some serious serious uh, political muscle to make it happen in Washington, D.C. to get Jeffrey Epstein off on his charges of not just having sex with 14-year-olds, but selling them, trafficking them, handing them off to his friends. That's your Ken Starr. Yeah, sure enough. This book is going to be really interesting. Another guy who was involved with this, by the way, the top federal prosecutor in Miami back in 2008 when Ken Starr helped Jeffrey Epstein get a sweetheart deal. The guy who was the prosecutor who cut that deal, his name was Alex Acosta. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Alex Acosta was in Trump's cabinet. He was our secretary of labor. Seriously. So what is Republican morality? Well, I get it that they don't want women to be able to get abortions. Okay. And, you know, if you don't want women having abortions, it seems to me like what you, what you would do is, is help women avoid getting pregnant. I mean, does that seem logical to you? And yet you literally have some of the same Republican legislators who don't want, who want to outlaw abortion also trying to outlaw birth control. This is not about not wanting abortions. If they didn't want abortions, they would, they would raise the economic and educational status and opportunities of women in the United States, and they would you know, make birth control more widely available and sex education in our schools. But they oppose all of those things. This is about, you know, that, that morality is about controlling women. What else is Republican morality? I'm, I'm kind of at a loss, frankly. 
it seems like you know their morality has to do with well we're going to get tough on crime we're going to we support the police until the police try to stop you from from staging a coup d'etat against the united states government on january 6th then they hate the police really you're listening to the tom hartman program i think there's actually even a larger kind of umbrella issue here which is what do these people believe or is it really just all about money and power Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, so here we have uh, in Missouri, the seven-day average of new cases, this is the latest, the seven-day average of new cases is nearly 1,400 new positive cases each day, up more than 150% from a month ago. In Arkansas, that number is up 287%. Caseloads and hospitalization rates in the Ozarks region have reached levels not seen since the winter, officials say. In several counties across Missouri and Arkansas, caseloads have now reached or surpassed their winter peaks. The Delta variant is now accounting for 73% of new cases in Missouri, which is the highest of any state. And the hospitals are starting to buckle. This, uh, this fellow, Mr. Cox, I forget his first name, uh, has been tweeting. He's the head of one of the big hospitals in, in, uh, in Missouri, and he's been tweeting about, oh, my God, you know, we've got to do something. Why are Republicans promoting more death and disease? Am I missing something here? I think it's pretty straightforward, but, you know, it's possible I'm missing something. Susan in Decatur, Georgia. Hey, Susan, what do you think? Hey, Tom, I think that I've been listening to you long enough to know that this country was founded on racism. This country uh, benefits from racism. Rich people benefit from racism. 
and the GQP and Trumpism is white supremacy. The FBI says the biggest threat is white supremacy. I've had a white supremacist tell me that they don't want universal health care because they like you have said before they don't want black people to have it the reason that they do not want to press on the vaccines is because they have the same information tom that you and i have the april uh letter that says covid infects and kills more brown and black people than anybody else. And about the Hispanic community and the vaccination thing is what I called you about in the very beginning of COVID. And and I expressed to you that my family is Mexican, that they all listen to Spanish radio and Spanish news, which is here in Atlanta owned by Fox News and uh, Univision. And um, the right wing... Spanish radio stations did not say anything about COVID and what was going on until Thursday. When the government released it on Monday, it was not translated into Spanish until Thursday. So that four-day window, now all the Hispanic people, my family, they truly believe in a partiality of the QAnon conspiracies regarding the vaccine. Oh, my God. So less than half of my family that can and are eligible to get vaccinated are vaccinated. I'm scared to death. Yeah. I have a nine-year-old that cannot get vaccinated, and I'm scared to death for him. Oh, yeah. You know, we've got grandchildren, and, and my children are, it's like, what do you do when you've got a kid who can't get vaccinated, and, you know, right. you would like to go to a restaurant, or you would like the kid to go to school or daycare, but, But it's you know, not fair that my, my, I have a 14-year-old that's already been vaccinated. He can go to the mall with his cousins mm-hmm. that are not vaccinated, the entire mall here in Georgia, no one wears a mask, including the cousins. So my nine-year-old wants to go to the mall. I can't let him go. Yeah. I can't, in, in good faith, in good parenting, let him go. Well, hopefully that's going to get fixed in the next few weeks. Uh, the, the, the studies on, on people under 16, I think it is, or 14, whatever the age under is. Under 12. Yeah, I've oh, got him signed okay. up for a... a vaccine trial. Yeah, because those the, the, those trials are supposed to be, you know, rolling over sometime in the middle of the summer. You know, I, 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 I don't recall the date that they were talking about, but I think it was July or August. So uh, hopefully that'll get cleaned up soon because uh, a lot of people uh, and, and this this also has to do with why some people are not wanting to come back into the workforce because they don't want to stick their right. kids in daycare where the kids will be exposed to COVID and bring it home. And even right. even, yeah. even vaccinated people can still get it. I mean, you know, it's, it's yeah. not as bad. It's not going to kill you in all probability. But, hey, it's no fun to get this disease. It's a terrible, terrible disease. And you don't want to be spreading it to other people who may be in your family or your neighborhood who may not be able to get immunity because they're immune compromised, because they're on drugs for arthritis or plaque psoriasis or or they've had a transplant of some kind. They're on immunosuppressive drugs and the vaccines don't produce immunity in them. The GOP just doesn't seem to care about any of this. It's just like, you know, let's crash the economy. Because white supremacy is more powerful than money. It really is. It really, well, it's, it's they're the same thing. White supremacy. It's yeah. it's it's not just about ideology or or you know weird theories of evolution. It's about who's in charge, who's got the cash, who's got the power that who's comes. Who's got with that control? Cash. Who has exactly. control over what we want and say? Exactly. 
Susan, brilliant. I've got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's, it's always nice to hear from you. I appreciate it. Mark in Chicago. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom. It's interesting that I'm following up that last, uh, you're just your, your caller. Let me ask you, Tom, okay, and please don't interrupt me. Our government has already shown that they will go after their, their people that they politically disagree with, meaning the IRS, okay? You had Kamala Harris before, back in October, saying that if Trump was going to administer the, the, um, the vaccination, she would not take it. Tom, when you were being called a white supremacist, a racist, a homophobe, why on earth would I now trust the government that is calling me every caustic name in the book because Mark, the government is not calling you anything. I'm calling you a white supremacist and a racist, but the government is not. Tom, yes, they are. No, no. You're taking one one sentence completely out of context, trying to blow it up, mispronouncing her name, which is, you know, one of the little racist tricks that they do on right wing hate radio. And and I'm over it, Mark. Thanks a lot. But see you later. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, way to go. <laughs> By the way, your rant about uh, Ken Starr, don't forget, he had to resign from Baylor uh, College right. because he was suppressing a uh, sex scandal there, or a rape by football players. Yep. Anyway, so the U.S. is an exceptional nation, and it's exceptional in that it has a history of slavery that is unique because unlike other places that have had slavery, American slavers suppressed education. They, they prevented the slaves from reading and writing and dancing and singing and practicing their religion. It was uniquely cruel. And putting out disinformation about vaccines, in my mind, is just an extension of what they've always done. It's just part of the same big bag. It's a very limited repertoire that they have. And um, you think it's about it's, keeping it's people American ignorant? Tradition to you, know, you think it, you, it, rather than as a, an election strategy, are you suggesting here, Jonathan, that, that what the Republicans are actually doing is basically trying to promote anti-science ideology to keep people stupid or cause them to distrust science? So, for example, maybe they will uh, you know, go along with the idea that there's no such thing as global warming and the petrobillionaires can continue to make their money? They've done that since the founding of the country. Of course, that's what they're doing. And frankly, I have a very simple solution to vaccination. And it's not um, having people signed up for lotteries or thinking of clever gimmicks. Um, Just offer people uh, Medicare for everyone who wants to get a vaccination. Say, hey, we're going to put you, uh, give you health insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at Canada, right, Canada has a third of our deaths per 100,000. We have the same uh, death rate as Mexico. Uh, that's crazy. And so much for the wall, right? But, yeah. And the thing people don't understand about Canada is that they think it's like, like our system of Medicare. It's actually not. It's actually 13 provincial and territorial health care insurance plans under a, an, a federal umbrella. Right. But they're actually, in a lot of ways, a, a private, you know, a varied system. It's not one giant system. Yeah, no, there um, are but different that's what benefits I would do. I would offer people health care. What's actually happening is the reverse. And I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop with regard to for- private for-profit health insurance companies who are going to, at some point, start saying, 
you know, you got COVID because you weren't vaccinated and therefore this $45,000 hospital bill or this $450,000 ICU hospital bill, we are not going to pay. And uh, that shoe is going to drop any day now, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's going to be ugly when it does. It's going to be very, very ugly. Uh, thanks a lot for the call, Jonathan. I'm still you know, trying to figure this one out. Why are Republicans promoting death and disease? And if you have a suggestion that beats my suggestion that I think it's an election strategy, I'd love to hear it. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I haven't heard anyone bring this up, but I wonder how many of these Republicans like Trump, the older CPAC people, and the liars at Fox who tell people not to get vaccinated would be alive today if presidents like FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower had told people not to take the smallpox, measles, diphtheria, chickenpox, I remember polio, polio and whooping cough vaccine. Yeah, in 1957, I was I was like in second grade or something like that, third grade, whatever it was. I remember, you know, getting yeah. the getting the polio vaccine. Yeah, yeah. In, in I mean, public school, people? and it was. I, I'm assuming it was mandated. I mean, maybe it wasn't like you will go to jail, but you know, I mean, they came into our school. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And we weren't allowed to go to school at all until we got the smallpox vaccine. Yeah. But I wonder how many of these people, has it occurred to them that they might not even be alive today if the Republicans uh, like Eisenhower or even people like Trump and FDR had said, I don't want you to get these vaccinations. They're dangerous. Yeah. They might not even be alive today to tell us not to get them. Well, this is this is one of the things where, you know, I, I, I just I, you know I put out this challenge and nobody has called yet and suggested a reason other than, uh, you know, a good substantial reason other than that the Republicans are trying to tank the economy for why they're promoting death and disease. One possibility that occurred to me, Carol, that nobody has mentioned and that I didn't mention in my article, but, you know, thinking back to my, my conversations here on the air with uh, psychiatrist Justin Frank, the professor mm -hmm. of psychiatry at George Washington right. University. And we were, we were right. talking about the cruelty is the point. There's actually a book out about that now, and it's about the, the, the policy of tearing families apart. And, but, yes. but, but that, you know, he pointed out that there are some people who actually get pleasure out of watching other people be in pain or even die. And yes. he asserted on this program, if I'm remembering correctly, that he, he believed that Donald Trump was one of those people and that many of his followers probably had a similar sentiment or similar worldview. And so it's right. possible that they're just doing it out of the pure joy of watching people die and get sick. But well, I can't believe that feeling. that's like right that's across the whole party, you know? Yeah, that's my feeling, Tom. I, I honestly believe that the fact that Trump is setting this party right now and that they are pretty much going with what he wanted. I mean, I totally agree with Justin Frank that he's one of these people who are absolutely into cruelty, into being sadistic, and they're just following, yeah. they're following their leader, and they're just letting people die they, because that's what he wanted to do even back when. I mean, we remember that. He told everybody back then it was a hoax, and he knew it wasn't a hoax. He, right. knew, he knew exactly what it was. Right. And it's not going to magically disappear, as he said. I mean, it, No, it, and I don't even think it's about the economy. I think cruelty is the point. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's I, sad, but that's, that's pretty much how I believe yeah. what I believe. Well, but, you know, there are so many Republicans who are totally on board with this. I, can't, I just can't I imagine that, you know, there's, there's a bunch of Republicans 
you know, in the House of Representatives, sitting around in the in the House, you know, lunchroom or dining room, I guess they call it, having a conversation where one of them says, you know, <laughs> you see this here in Missouri? We've got another, you know, 12,000 people were just diagnosed and, and the ICUs are overflowing. Isn't that fun? You know, aren't we enjoying watching these people in pain? I can't imagine a conversation where they're saying, well, the ICUs are starting to fill up. The hospitals are starting to fill up. Pretty soon, they're going to start shutting down the economy. And you know, when that happens, the market's going to tank. And when that happens, we're going to win the 2022 elections. I can, I can well, actually I imagine that, that conversation. I, I doubt that they had that conversation. But at the same time, even if I, I don't see how they can continue to call themselves the party of pro-life. I mean, yeah. obviously, if they're against abortion, they wouldn't be wanting to kill their own people. Yeah. And that's who are mostly going to die because of these uh, not getting the vaccine. Well, it will we already have largely be Republicans, won't it? Yeah, 607,000 people are already dead. And our hospitals yeah, are filling up again, and they're all unvaccinated people. Or almost all, you know. So anyhow, we'll, we'll continue the conversation. Carol, thank you. Uh, it's nice to, nice to, always nice to hear from you. Defending America from the weapons of mass deception. We'll be back with your calls right after this. Britt in Eureka, California, listening on KGO. Hey, Britt, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Well, as it turns out, you are 100% correct. You think? There is no explanation other than what the explanation that you've given. Let's, let's look back at Mitch McConnell's words. He is 100% against uh, preventing the Biden administration from succeeding. Right. So, so they, they've already said it. They've come right out and said it. They want to basically risk Americans' lives in the attempt to win an election. So that's essentially what's going on here. If, if I'm right about this, if, that's, if, if you're also right, Britt, and this is, this is exactly what's going on, then how do we respond to this? Uh, I think as early and as often as we can, starting, of course, with your show, we need to call them out with those exact words. They are risking American lives to, to tell to a elections. false story, to tell a false story that the Biden, administ- the Biden administration did not succeed in, in rolling out the, the vaccines. I mean, this is the story you're going to hear starting this fall all the way through the election in, in 2022. And then they're going to and start calling it the be- Trump vaccine and saying, you know, why didn't more people yeah. get the Trump vaccine? And I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I think you could kind of game theory this out. You know, it's uh, uh, but it, it- you're doing a great job of it. And I think exactly you are the, the, the voice that can lead that can carry this out, which is that that Americans are at risk from Republican behavior to try and win an election, you know, in 2022, the congressional elections, they're going to, to risk American lives by trying to convince Republicans. And yeah. the, it's all, not all they're just not they going to. I mean, they're actually actively yeah. doing this as we speak. I mean, that, that's the part that just makes my head explode. It's just I can't imagine. Now, I mean, Tucker Carlson going on TV, refusing to say if he's vaccinated or not. Obviously, the guy's vaccinated. Come on. He's not a stupid man. He's a multimillionaire, which doesn't necessarily equate to intelligence, but he's a very smart guy and he's got incredible resources and he's not going to risk all that by getting COVID. And he goes on TV and scares the hell out of people about the vaccine. How can this guy sleep at night? 
And then Alex Berenson at the CPAC conference, uh, encouraging the crowd to say, you know, to cheer him when he says people aren't getting, you guys aren't getting vaccinations. That's great for America. That's an outrage. I mean, it's it's really sad for America right now. And I'm so proud of you. You know, it's like if Mohammed bin Salman, you know, the emperor of Saudi Arabia, were to decide that he really was pissed off at America because we wanted to hold him to account for killing Khashoggi. And so he he wants to just destroy us. He's going to really hurt this country. I think probably the most effective thing he could do is pour, you know, a a few million dollars into a a vaccine disinformation campaign on Facebook and Twitter to try to cause people not to get vaccinated. In fact, he may well be doing it. You know, we know that this is one of the messages that's coming out of some of the Russian trolls. We know that it's coming out of some of the Chinese trolls. We know it's coming out of this Chinese cult, you know, that publishes a newspaper here. For foreigners to be saying this, yeah, of course they want to hurt our country. They want to hurt our citizens. I don't think you have to be a a fulminating nativist to understand the possibility (laughs) of that. But to have American citizens, elected officials... And people in the American media who are being paid millions of dollars a year to deliver information to people, just lying through their teeth about the, you know, about this vaccine and about what happens and all this stuff. It's just, it's more than I can fathom. I mean, I just, I try to put myself, I'm in the media, right? I, I mean, it's, I'm, it's not, this, this platform is nowhere near the size of Fox News, but I'm in the media. And I can't imagine looking into this camera or talking into this microphone and telling people things that I know are going to kill them or get them really sick or disable them because somehow it's going to politically advantage my side. I just can't imagine it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And so, therefore, I'm thinking there's got to be a reason. What's the reason? Well, it's probably power and money. Those are the things that typically drive people. That and sex. I don't see where anybody's getting sex out of this. Carol in Egan, Minnesota. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Okay, I can't disagree, but I'm going to add some flame to the fire. Okay. Think about the advertising. If enough people die, they will be able to do comparisons with what Donald did that was so great, because look at Biden, even with all of this extra help, which Donald didn't have has been able to has hasn't done any better than Donald did with nothing. So if I understand correctly what you're saying, Carol, or at least my under, my interpretation of what you're saying is that, you know, uh, Trump, uh, when Trump left office, half a million Americans were dead. So if they yep. can kill another half a million and throw in a couple hundred thousand for good measure, then by the 2024 election, when Trump says he's going to run for re-election or has been kind of you know, tweaking us that he will, um, that he'll be able to say, well, you know, Biden killed as many people as I did. Come on, don't pick on me. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. It would be all about But they're killing Republicans. This is the thing that's so baffling. I mean, you know, this is, CNN is starting to point this out. You take a map of the election of 2020 and, you know, all the red states that went for Donald Trump. And then you take a map of, of where COVID is erupting and people are dying and ICUs are starting to fill back up again. And there are nearly identical maps. Yep. 
It's like, how they're killing their own people. It's amazing. Anyhow, Carol, thank you for the call. Dave in Portland. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Great show. Your last caller just sort of put a spin on what I was wanting to say. I agree with her. I think mm-hmm. there's a, an element of that. I agree with Justin Frank. That the, the, says that there's a there's a lot of just plain psychopathy involved here. Uh, I know I have a, a Republican family in the Midwest that are acting like psychopaths toward me for just for having my opinions. Mm. And it's cancerous. It's growing. And it's Justin Frank has talked about it. It's it's rooted in suffering. It's rooted in fear. It's rooted in the slow, degrading, GOP-driven poverty is growing. And mm. and the reason I called was to suggest that the reason Republicans want so many people to die of COVID is to uh, to get them off of uh, welfare, Medicaid, and uh, Social Security. Well, that's a possibility, I Dave. I mean, these red states are the largest consumers of welfare in the United States. They're the poorest states. So if they can kill off a bunch of those people, then they free up some of their budget that they can use to spiff their buddies, you know? It's, uh... For taxes. Yeah, so, cut taxes. Add, add, to that, what, add to that what I've called into the show a couple of times about, which is behind the same thing with McConnell last year blocking all aid to small businesses and the poor, mm-hmm. right? To make to make them go bankrupt so they can get those houses, so they can get those small businesses for pennies on the dollar. There are hedge funds bigger than the GOP. They own the GOP. The GOP is owned oh, by Oh yeah. So out of a crisis we make money. I get it. Dude. Capitalism. It's a, it's, yeah, it's yeah. disaster capitalism. Yeah. It's it's what Naomi Klein wrote. Yeah, the book vulture, about. The vulture. Yeah. I mean, we literally call them vulture funds. Yeah, cases. yeah, you're right. You're right. Dave, thank you for that. That you know, it's the, this conversation is starting to fill out the picture. I think. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You have probably noticed the uh, coverage on television and in the media in general about protests in Cuba. People are in the streets, or at least they were. The story today is that the uh, 
the police are in the streets. I, and Leonardo Flores is on the line with us, Latin American policy analyst and campaigner with Code Pink, codepink.org. Leonardo EFA is his Twitter handle and, of course, at Code Pink on Twitter, codepink.org as well, if I didn't say that already. I think I did. Leonardo, welcome to the program. Tell us, what's the story behind the story here? I'm, I'm assuming it has an awful lot to do with the Trump administration changing the Obama administration policies toward Cuba. I was, uh, Louise and I, my wife and I were down in Cuba for a week on a trip that you guys put together, Code Pink, back when President Obama was president. And it was you know, quite the place. We had a marvelous time. But things changed considerably under Trump. Yeah, that's right. Thanks so much for the invitation, Tom, first of all. Sure. And uh, really, we have to say that it goes beyond Trump. This story, that what's behind the protest really is the 60-plus year embargo that the United States has imposed on Cuba. It's an economic war that has affected every person in Cuba, and it's really affected every you know, sector of society and the economy. And so people, you know, we're talking about thousands of people that took to the streets on Sunday to protest basically two things. One is the economic conditions that are, the Cuban people are currently facing. And second, there was an uptick in a uh, surge in basic COVID cases that collapsed the hospital in the state of Matanzas in Cuba, and people are very upset about that. But of course, we all have to put this in perspective. So when we talk about thousands of people on the streets in Cuba, it really is, you know, quite possibly the biggest protest in Cuba in 30 years. But, you know, the, the Cuban revolution itself routinely turns out hundreds of thousands, if not a million people for their own uh, marches and rallies. So, um, you know, in two weeks, it's going to be the anniversary of July 26th, part of the uh, huge date for the Cuban revolution. And I'm sure we're going to see hundreds of thousands of people on the streets in Cuba supporting the revolution. So it all has to be kept in perspective. And, but yeah, you're right. A big part of it has to do with the Trump administration because they worsened sanctions on Cuba during the pandemic. They imposed sanctions about energy, tourism, banking, and other sectors, and they limited remittances that Cuban Americans sent back to the island, and they also limited travel as well. All right, which has just got to, it's just tightening the screws. I mean, it's, it's terribly tightening the screws. So are there any indications that the Biden administration, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this kind of tough talk and I'm guessing that they're pandering to the, particularly to the Cuban-American vote in South Florida that tends to go very Republican. I don't know why they even bother, but saying, well, you know, we're going to, we're with the Cuban people, uh, this kind of stuff. But is there any serious discussion in our government today of going back to the Obama era policies of essentially liberalizing our relationship with Cuba? That, you know, when, when Luis and I were there, they, one of the things that we found was that there were all these little restaurants that were opening all over, all over time. You know, free enterprise, if you want to, you know, I'm not sure you could call it full blown capitalism, but free enterprise was flourishing when we were there, at least in Havana and some of the, and the, the one of the small town that we visited. The government has been adopting what you might call some arguably some progressive changes. What's the status of our government's relationship to that? It seemed like we were helping them move in the right direction. Right. So when President Biden was campaigning, he actually promised to go back to the Obama era policy, which was basically re-engagement, reproachment. There was uh, the you know, diplomatic ties between the countries were fully restored. There was this kind of an impulse towards lifting the blockade. That didn't happen, of course. But now what we're seeing is that because of these protests, because of particularly from the reaction in the white right, from the right wing in Florida, as you said, the Biden administration seems to be pulling back a bit. Uh, they, you know, I think he had a statement yesterday or the day before 
where he called on, you know, Cuban, the Cuban authorities to grant Cuban people the right to freely determine their own future. But that's impossible in the context of a blockade, of an embargo, of course. The embargo cost Cuba something like, that has cost Cuba $150 billion over the last six years. And it also cost the U.S. economy quite a bit. The Chamber of Commerce says that it costs $1.2 billion a year to the U.S. economy itself, while the Cuba Policy Foundation places that number at $4.8 billion. But we haven't seen the Biden administration take any steps towards Cuba. Uh, when they've been called on it by the press, the reaction has been, well, we're reviewing the policy right now. And basically what, what we understand, the Cuba followers and analysts, is that the administration is focusing on Iran uh, and they don't want to jeopardize talks with Iran if and they feel that they might in terms of what the Senate will do if they also take on the issue of Cuba right now. They don't think they can walk and chew gum at the same time? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. They can't do it because, in part, because of Robert Menendez, an important Democratic senator from New Jersey, who was also Cuban-American Cuban -American and very much against the Obama-era's policy. But we're uh, seeing a huge groundswell of support from the grassroots to lift the embargo and in Congress as well. Just last March, there were 80 House Democrats wrote a letter to President Biden urging him to lift the Trump-era sanctions and begin again this process of normalization with relations with Cuba. If you, I mean, the, the, the big lesson that I got from the time that Louise and I spent there was that if you think that helping Cuba move out of a, a somewhat rigid communist or neo-communist or whatever you want to call it, entirely state-run model, into the beginnings of a, of a free enterprise model where people can start small businesses, and, but very, very limited so that they're not repeating essentially the mistakes we're making, where now we have an economy that is completely dominated by giant monopolies. I, I would not call our economy free at all. But if you want to see the move in a direction that seems like a, a positive, what at least seemed to me a positive direction, then engage them, right? You know, allow tourism, allow trade. You know, it's, I realize I'm, I may be sounding a little like a, a classic neoliberal here, but correct me if I'm off in some kind of fantasy here, Leonardo. I, I, no, I, th I think you're right. I mean, if I, if the idea from the United States is to influence Cuba in a positive way. And the only way to do that is to have diplomatic relations, to engage in trade, to engage in a free exchange of ideas. None of that is happening right now because of the Trump sanctions and because of the limits uh, that the Trump administration put on the bilateral relationship with Cuba. On top of that, you know, Cuba is a country that just had and wrote a new constitution that submitted it to a referendum in 2019. It was something like 81 percent voter turnout. Ninety percent of the people voted yes to this new constitution, which includes some sort of liberalization, so to speak, of the economy, including the right to private to own property. So we are seeing some steps in that direction. But it should also be noted that Cuba, despite all these difficulties, despite the economic warfare of the United States for over 60 years, Cuba is a country that has high human development, according to the United Nations Development Program. And that's because Cuba, for the last 60 years, has been investing in health care, in education, in, in the social safety net, in, a, you know, in, in contrast to, say, the United States, which has been investing in war and police for the past 60 right. years. And we see a, you know, a big marked, marked difference there. Oh, and that was very clear. And I mean, Cuba's major export is doctors, for God's sake. In fact, we visited one of the medical schools and they were developing you know, remedies and, and new drugs and things uh, that were just, I mean, cutting edge stuff. What is the status of vaccination for COVID in Cuba right now? pharmaceuticals? Are they buying them from China or from Russia? Are they developing their own? What's going on there in that context? They don't have any access to the, you know, the COVAX system, which is, and, and other private 
vaccines, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. In fact, Cuba is actually developing five of its own vaccines. My understanding is that two of those have already been approved by Cuban health authorities, and they have a 91% and a 92% efficiency rating. So very successful vaccines that they're developing. Already 2 million Cubans have been vaccinated, which only represents roughly around 20% of the population. And the biggest restriction right now, the biggest impediment to vaccinating the entire population is that there's a shortage of syringes in Cuba. And that shortage is, again, entirely due to the U.S. embargo on Cuba. In fact, at Code Pink with global health partners and other organizations, we just raised around $500,000 to buy syringes and send them to Cuba for their vaccination program. On top of that, Cuba has promised to produce 100 million vaccines that it will share with the global south. So really, if Cuba can get going with its vaccination program and can solidify these vaccines that they're developing, it's going to be a big boon to people all over the world who don't also don't have access to the vaccine. Remarkable. Leonardo Flores, the Latin American policy analyst and campaigner with CodePink.org. Leonardo EFA is his Twitter handle and CodePink, of course, Twitter handle, CodePink.org. Leonardo, thanks a lot for dropping by. It was very informative. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Good talking with you and keep up the great work. Code Pink is just one of our great organizations. It's the town of Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Medea Benjamin's new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. And this is from the introduction. Through the women-led peace organization Code Pink, which I co-founded with Jody Evans after the 9-11 attacks, I have spent much of the last decade standing up against U.S. military intervention in the Middle East, and supporting local democracy activists. I traveled many times to the region, listening to human rights activists, marching with them in the streets, dodging tear gas and bullets, and getting beaten up and deported by government thugs. I have seen firsthand the deadly effects of U.S. foreign policies. The 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq destroyed the lives of millions, including many of my dear friends, and unleashed the sectarian hatred that later gave birth to the Islamic State. I recall a conversation with my Iraqi colleague, Yanar Mohammed, daughter of a Shiite father and a Sunni mother, and founder of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. When I asked her what was the most notable legacy of the U.S. invasion of her country, she gave the chilling response, we, Sunnis and Shia, learned to hate each other. In another part of the Middle East, U.S. military support for Israel has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians and aroused the ire of people throughout the region. Continuous U.S. military interventions, drone warfare in Yemen, to overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, to funneling an endless stream of weapons into the region, have unleashed new levels of violence. But the United States is not the only nation whose massive footprint has been trampling on the lives of people in the Middle East. The other nation is Saudi Arabia, an oppressive monarchy that denies human rights to its own people and exports extremism around the world also happens to be the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world. During the 1980s and 1990s, I met intolerant and violent young men in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were trained to hate Westerners in Saudi schools. In 2001, I saw my own nation convulsed by an attack on September 11th that was perpetrated mostly by Saudis. Not hard to connect the dots behind the spread of the Saudi intolerant ideology of Wahhabism, the creation of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and the attacks in New York, Paris, Brussels, and San Bernardino. You can also connect the dots between Saudi Arabia and the failure of some of the historic uprisings associated with the Arab Spring, since the Saudi monarchy did not want calls for democracy to threaten its own grip on power. 
I was in Bahrain after Saudi tanks crushed the inspiring grassroots encampment in Pearl Square, where tens of thousands had gathered day after day to demand democracy. I will never forget the excitement of being in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution and watching a gasp, uh, gasped as a military coup backed by the Saudis put some 40,000 activists behind bars. In Yemen, the Saudis took a direct military role in that nation's internal conflict with a ruthless bombing campaign. When I travel overseas, people often ask me why Saudi Arabia, a country that is so repressive internally and overseas, is such a close ally to the United States. Iranian friends want to know why the U.S. government is so outspoken about human rights violations in Iran, but silent about the worst abuses in the Saudi kingdom. Yemenis ask why my government supplies weapons to the very nation, Saudi Arabia, that bombed their schools and hospitals. Saudi women ask why the United States, which professes great democratic values, props up a regime that treats women as second-class citizens. The easy answer is oil, weapon sales, and other business interests. Oil has formed the basis for U.S.-Saudi ties. The kingdom has become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, and hundreds of billions of Saudi petrodollars help shore up the U.S. economy. But there's another reason, perhaps more critical than any of the others. The American people have not demanded an end to this dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Why? In part, because the American people know so little about it. Even American parts of a peace movement know virtually nothing about the kingdom. The Saudi press is muzzled, foreign journalists are strictly monitored, and only tourists visiting for religious purposes are allowed into the country. Add to that a Saudi lobby that lines the pockets of U.S. think tanks, such as the Middle East Institute, Ivy League universities such as Harvard and Yale, and influential institutions from the Clinton Foundation to the Carter Center. This checkbook diplomacy helps put a happy face on the abusive monarchy and silences its critics. We have a lot to uncover. This book is meant to be a primer, giving readers a basic understanding of how the kingdom holds on to power internally and tries to influence the outside world. It looks at the founding of the Saudi state, the treatment of dissidents, religious minorities, women and migrant workers, the spread of Wahhabism, the kingdom's relationship with the West and its role in the region, and what the future might hold. As we delve into the inner workings of this dystopian regime, don't mistake criticism of Saudi Arabia for Islamophobia. This book is not a critique of Islam but a critique of three intertwining factors that have shaped the Saudi nation. The extremist interpretation of Sunni Islam, known as Wahhabism, the appropriation of the Saudi state by one family, and Western support for this dynasty. Criticizing Saudi Arabia should not be equated with support for Saudi's nemesis, Iran. The Iranian government is guilty of some of the same abuses as the Saudis. Kingdom of the Unjust. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 